0: All right, so moving forward and kind of to dive back in, uh, last time we got to the last section of Galatians chapter 4, and it's speaking about this kind of weird imagery that Paul is giving us here of this bond woman and the free woman and mountains and cities and all these things that, you know, as I kind of closed out last time, I didn't get to really dive in and explain. I will say that, uh, you know, this imagery is one that would be very familiar for um, it's Jewish listeners, but it was also a means of trying to bring in these Gentile listeners here at Galatia that he is, he's kind of giving them the picture of before and after, so to speak. Um, he's also giving them the picture of these kind of two realities that were going on, even back in the time of Abraham and Sarah, but also going forward and present in the church at Galatia, present um, still today to some degree, that you had these two kind of icons within the Jewish faith of Abraham and his two uh, children that came forth, one by Hagar who was the bondwoman or the slave of, of his wife Sarah and then of Sarah herself and the child Isaac of promise. So between Ishmael and Isaac, you have these two representations of two um kind of realities you also had him describing two mountains one was mount sinai and one as we found you know he doesn't list it here in this chapter but he does in um in the book of hebrews you have the picture of the two mountains of mount sinai which is obviously where moses went up and the law was given um, which was kind of a continuation of everything from abraham okay um, and, and the promises and everything that's kind of listed in there, it, you know, it culminates at Mount Sinai where you have this nation brought out of Egypt and, and kind of inaugurated as the people of God that are going to go forward and found a kingdom in Israel, and etc. So you have this established but still very man-centric um, kind of philosophy that's, that's put in place there. And then you have the other, which he describes as Mount Zion, which he says is from above, Jerusalem. Um, which is from above that comes down, and that is the free city. Um, That is the place of uh, spiritual dwelling for the children of Sarah, the child Isaac, the children of promise. So in this, and we'll just read through it to kind of recap, he says... 21 of chapter 4 of Galatians, he says, and everybody open up their Bibles um, if you're at home, uh, turn on your device, whatever it may be, and read along with me. Verse 21, chapter 4, he says, "'Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondmaid and the other by a free woman.'" That's Hagar and Sarah. "'But he who was of the bondwoman,' that would be Ishmael, "'was born after the flesh.'" But he of the free woman, now it's Isaac, was born by promise. Which things are in allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from the Mount Sinai, which engenders or creates bondage or lives out to bondage, which is Hagar, okay? For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath made many more children than she which has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what what says the Scripture cast out the bondwoman and her son for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir or inherit with the son of the free woman so then brethren we are not children of the bondwoman but of the free so this whole again kind of picture that's giving here is this interesting allegory as paul describes it between hagar mount sinai which is representative of the law and of all the descendants that kind of fall in under that, which he says is Jerusalem, which is now, okay? And he's giving this picture of these Judaizers who have come in, the same ones that that Christ mentions a lot as he is doing his ministry, calling out the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and all the kind of elitist Jews at that time who were teaching things that were actually contrary to what God's Word said, but we're continuing to promote this this traditional religion of Judaism, okay, which he calls him out on plenty of times and says, "Look, it was through this that I came, but it was also through this Jewish tradition, Jewish law, Jewish religion that you were pointed to me, like you were you were supposed to follow up to me. I'm the Messiah, I'm the one you were supposed to submit to, instead, you have rejected me." and you've held to the traditions that you have created, okay? So that's why he's saying that this is the Jerusalem that is now, this grouping of people who continue to live in bondage under that traditional Jewish custom, okay, and traditional Jewish religion. He says that you are not a part of, as he's preaching to these Galatians. He says that's them now, they're in bondage. Is that really where you want to go? you by contrast are actually the children of promise you come down that lineage of isaac again not naturally because majority of you are gentile but you're coming through that same lineage that he's already kind of reiterated that lineage that comes through faith faith that abraham had is the faith that you have the promises that were given to abraham by faith are tied to you by faith christ is the link between those But that's the lineage that you're a part of that comes through promise that comes like Isaac did, one that came by the sovereign interaction of God. So he says, that's what you're a part of. He says, that's the free, that's the Mount Zion, that is Jerusalem which is above, that's the free city, that is the the true spiritual reality that, that you are a part of. And now you're trying to go and be a part of this bondage, law, Mount Sinai, Hagar tradition, and that's contrary to where you're at. It says, instead, do like what was commanded, cast out the bondwoman and her child, because they'll never inherit with the son of promise. Not what I mentioned last time, you know, there was this verse that I stumbled upon as we were going through our Lent season, you know, the, the reading program that we were using kind of directed us through the book of Ezekiel, and there's a lot of things in Ezekiel, and again, I don't pretend to know everything about what Ezekiel's talking about, and maybe one day we'll all get to sit down around a table with Ezekiel and go, okay, lay it out for me straight, like, what's the wheels and the eyes and the fire and all that, because I just, I can't get it, so But there was this very clear verse that jumped out to me in Ezekiel that I don't guess I've ever really grasped hold of uh, before, which is why I always encourage, you know, that's that's why we do this. That's why we go back and read over and over again, because it's amazing what stands out to us. So Ezekiel chapter 46, verses 16 and 17, there's this phrase that is given to Ezekiel by the Lord that is kind of a, it's a proclamation about how this new reality was going to be for Ezekiel. Israel at this time. So they've gone into bondage, they're coming out, and Ezekiel's given this beautiful vision of this new city, this new temple, this new reality um, where, where we're following in, in obedience to God. And so here he says, though, in this verse, and I know it's taken way out of the chapter, and I don't have time to read it all, but this is the, the gist of it. Thus says the Lord, okay, if the prince, or if the ruler at that time, gives a gift to any of his sons as an inheritance... It shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be with his servant, okay, he will inherit that until the year of liberty. Then it shall revert back to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. Now, what is interesting about that is that you see that there was a temporary time where the prince, the ruler, the father, the man who owned the land, whatever it may be, could temporarily give his land as an inheritance, give his property or whatever as an inheritance to one of his servants. Okay? Now, the traditional was you gave it to your sons, all right? but you could actually give it to one of your servants. But what God has laid out here as his holy principle is if you give it to one of your servants, that's fine, but it only lasts with that servant for a period of time. It, in fact, it's till the time of liberty um, or also the year of Jubilee. Okay? So those times when everything was to revert back, when the slaves were set free, Okay, and also when anyone who had lost their land by hardship or whatever was the the clocks were kind of reset, the books were reset, you know, all that wonderful time in the time of liberty, that was given back over. Well, the slaves were never given perpetual inheritance of the master's land or goods or property. They could have it for a time, but once the year of liberty came back around, it reverted back to the master or to his sons because only. The sons can truly inherit forever. And that's what Paul's kind of getting at with this. He says, what was the principle way back then? What happened with Hagar and her son? Now, Sarah, out of jealousy, kind of pushed that, but the principle was the same. The slave, the child of the bondwoman, shall not inherit with the child of promise. There's only one inheritor in this situation, and it's the one that was the child of promise, or the chosen child. The lineage that God gave in this case. Not the lineage that was created by a kind of man-made situation. It wasn't out of Abraham's work with Hagar that they were going to inherit. It was out of God's work in Sarah that they were going to inherit. Okay, Meaning that the inheritance was to fall to the sons, and the sons only, who came by this lineage that was of faith, That's who was going to inherit. Now, the interesting thing is you would look at the history of Jerusalem, the history of Judaism, the history of this Mount Sinai law and lineage and Hagar, all this stuff that he's laying out here, and there's a time that they did inherit it. They held onto this kingdom of God in Jerusalem. They held onto the kingdom of Israel. We see that as God, as Jesus is walking through in his ministry, in his years, you see these Pharisees, Sadducees, Jewish leaders, Jewish religious leaders holding on to the inheritance. Okay, And there was a time that that was allowed. It was given over to them in that way. But when the fullness of time came, Christ came, born of a woman, born under that law, that slavery of Hagar, that Mount Sinai, To redeem his people, the true heirs, the children of promise, the sons, who were to be redeemed out of their slavery to the elementary principles, as he's talked about earlier, which was the law and any other kind of man-centric religious tradition, to give them their inheritance that can only truly be possessed by the sons or the heirs. So that's kind of the reality that's done here. What was undone at this moment was that this inheritance was taken back away from the servants who were given it for a period of time and then in turn given to the true children of promise. This is kind of reiterated or I guess it can't be reiterated if it's before it's been iterated, but um, here in Matthew, and if you look at Matthew chapter eight, there's this this phrase that Christ used when he's talking um, to the to the Jewish leaders at that point, and he says, you know, Jesus marvelled and said to them that followed him, "Verily I say to you, I have not found so great a faith, no, not in Israel." This is when he has healed the. A centurion's son, and he sa- or the centurion's servant. And he says, I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, that's always one of those verses that's like, who? Who is he talking about? Well, I believe in that case, who he's addressing is these religious leaders who believe themselves to be the, the children of the kingdom, but they're not by faith, and they're cast out. The ones who he would, you would anticipate by their tradition would come up and say, hey, we have a seat at the table because look at us. We can trace our lineage back to Abraham. We, are the, we follow Moses. We do all those things. And Jesus said, never knew you. Depart from me. The inheritance goes to the children of promise, and there's many of them who are going to come out of the east and the west, and they're going to sit down in the kingdom. They're going to inherit the kingdom. They're going to sit down with the, with the ancestors of the kingdom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you are going to be cast out. And that's what he tells them here. What was the admonition to the bondwoman and her son? Throw them out. They will not inherit with the sons of promise. And so what he's getting at with this is as these Judaizers have come back into the Galatian church and they're trying to pull them back into this slavery, trying to pull them back to Mount Sinai, trying to pull them away from faith in Christ to faith in themselves for justification through circumcision, Paul's going, guys, what was the principle from all this? Throw it out. Throw out that, re- that quote-unquote, that religious garbage. You have Christ. The other stuff gets thrown out. Especially this law-based stuff that is only going to lead to further slavery. You've been delivered from that. So throw that out. And we, too, are kind of called in many cases because, again, as as the years pass by, we get very habitual, we get very traditional, we get very whatever, and things get kind of just the norm of what we do. And we have to be careful because we can fall into the same traps where we fall towards traditions and self-justification rather than falling onto Christ and Christ alone. So we too have to be careful and we have to sometimes throw out the religious trash that we've let build up. That we don't adopt traditions as our all-in-all. We don't rely on religiosity as our go-to And we don't promote exclusivity as a core value of the church. That it's us and them and us and nobody else. We have to get back to faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's it. So then he goes forward and he kind of starts speaking in chapter 5 about this freedom, this liberty as he describes it. So we'll start there in chapter 5 of Galatians and he says... Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you are circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Because I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. Christ has become of no effect to you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. You are fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails or is good for anything, but what is good is faith which works by love. You did run well. Who has hindered you that you should not obey the truth? This persuasion comes not of him that calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, and I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded, but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment whosoever he be. Now, that first little section that he gives there in chapter five, you know, what he's calling us to is, again, this this reality that he has been preaching to the Galatian church for the last four chapters. It's about Christ. It's all about Christ. Christ it's about faith in christ and that's it it's not about your works it's not about your self-justification it's not about your adherence to religious traditions it's not about your keeping of the law it's not about those things that's not what got you here and what's so what's so i guess mind-boggling about that especially for this church is because these are a bunch of gentiles he's preaching to he says guys you have never been a part of this you've never been engaged in this why now You've already seen how you have been changed. Radical grace sets us free. Free from these elementary principles. Free from the bondage that he's describing here. Christ came and died through faith to set us free. And without prerequisites or man's intervention. That's what makes grace so radical. It wasn't about us. In fact, it's radically not about us. And Christ did it for a purpose, not just to deliver us from our sins and from hell, but for a new radical life here in freedom. You know, it's kind of like when you think about a war situation, when someone has fought hard for something, everybody can think of like iconic pictures of like Iwo Jima, where we're, you know, pushing up the flag. And that's a, that's a famous iconic picture, storming the beaches Normandy, all those things are kind of these iconic big war scenarios that we can remember and they are symbols of victory to us. And you always have this kind of reverberating theme that goes along with it. Did we fight so hard and die so much for that victory to just give it all away? Did we fight so hard and die so much for that victory, that iconic victory, to just give it all away? Did Christ fight so hard and die for us for our victory, and now we're just giving it all away over to something that's nothing? It's not like we're picking, you know, some other equally, you know, exciting and beneficial. Character like Jesus, because you know it's just there's not one, but rather for like this self-made man thing. Well, that's a that's a cheap alternative. There's this commentary that um, I was reading on the book of Galatians. This by a man named R. A. Cole. Don't really know him. Um, never met him, but he did put a his statement in this. I thought was a very beautiful statement about what Paul is getting at with this. And, and what he says is promise and fulfillment meet in the Christian church, in the cross of Christ, not in the law of Moses. And the covenant with Abraham had been the great prototype and preparation for this. But the, what struck me as such a beautiful phrase was the phrase promise and fulfillment meeting in the Christian church, in the cross of Christ, not man-made religion or traditionalism or legalism, but in the cross and only in the cross. That's where promise and fulfillment meet. That's the only place they can meet in the church. It can't be in any other place. It can't be by any other means, especially if those means are man-made. It, can't, it won't stand up. So that's why when he's talking about this, he's telling these Gentiles, he's like, look, you can't find promise and fulfillment in circumcision in the law. The only place you can find it is the place you had found it, which is in the cross of Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to remember as we go through this fifth chapter that Paul continues and concludes his arguments that Christ, through radical grace, has delivered us, set us free, and radically changed us. And just as we are set free from religious traditionalism and self-justification, we are also set free from the bondage previously placed on us in our unregenerate condition. So radical grace makes us radically new, new creature, new spirit, new operating system. So that's kind of what he's getting at as he gets into this fifth chapter. So he starts and says, stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made us free and not to be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. There's another way that that's put that I really liked. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, in it and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Christ has set us free to be free that's that's why he did it he did not set us free to just get entangled again into some yoke of bondage he did all that he did all the amazing things all the self-sacrifice all the suffering and dying on the cross everything that we talked about from a few weeks back at easter time all of that was done to set us free So Paul is encouraging the Galatians, stand in that freedom. Stand in it, live in it, enjoy it. It was paid for by a heavy price. Live in that, you've been set free. Enjoy it. Why would you want to be entangled again by bondage? Interesting, though, as I've kind of, as we've been studying through this, you know, again, there's been plenty of times where chapter 5, I have taken it out and I have used it in so many different contexts for our lives and our Christian walk and, and all those things. But let's, let's look at what he's actually talking about in context here as chapter 5 is a continuation from the first four chapters and the main theme of what he is addressing. So what freedom? What is the freedom that Christ has given us? What did Christ set us free from well he kind of gives us the answer he set us free we have freedom from the yoke of slavery okay well what is the yoke of slavery is it sin is it lust is it drug addiction is it adultery well no and yes the slavery that he is addressing here in particular is of this quote-unquote religion okay that's what he's addressing here. He's talking about the circumcision and the law. That's the slavery he's directly in context zeroing in on at this moment. That's, it's, this is the culmination of his argument for the last four chapters. The slavery that he is addressing here is of this quote-unquote religion, that Paul is using the imagery of a yoke, which if, you, you know, if you're looking at commentators, they will typically state that as... At this time in history, the Jews frequently use this term yoke at this point in time to describe your submission to the Jewish law. Okay? That you were yoking yourself to it, that you were bearing it in submission. So Paul therefore is reiterating that the slavery in context here is to this traditional, now man-centric religion that is Judaism, and you know that does have greater context for us today. But the freedom that Christ has set us free from in context of what Paul is addressing here is from achievement-based justification and instead has blessed us with a Christ-centered, faith-based justification. So we take away the achievement-based justification that puts it all on us, that puts it all on our actions that we achieve by our keeping of the law or doing right or being a good moral person or whatever, and instead it shifts it all back to Christ. It's just Christ, and Christ did it all, and Christ fulfilled what we could never fulfill, and Christ achieved what we could never achieve. So that's what we're being set free from, and that's the slavery that you're seeing the Galatian church getting kind of pulled back into. Slavery to man-based, achievement-based justification. And yes, Christ did set us free from those other things above, from the sin and the lust and the adultery and fornication, etc. But in this context, he's specifically referring the circumcision and the Jewish traditional religion. Now, both of them go hand in hand but what he's trying to get them to really grasp on, on is the setting free from the achievement-based stuff. You've been delivered from that. And he goes on to make the point, he says, if you get circumcised, if you decide now, Gentile Galatians who are uncircumcised, who have already been delivered, already free, already living in the freedom, already, you know, that you've experienced the Holy Spirit, you have like, you've, you're there. If you now get yourself circumcised just because you think that's what you have to do because these false teaching Judaizers have come in and somehow bewitched you and convinced you that that is what is necessary. He says, if you get circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. He says, he'll be of no benefit to you. If you follow the law... You have to follow the law to its natural conclusions. You have to rely on it, and it has to be your source of justification, which means you have to keep the law perfectly as prescribed by the law, otherwise you're cursed and you're cut off. Paul even goes as far as to say that if you rely on the law for your justification, then you have fallen from grace and you have become alienated from Christ. The phrase that's used there in that sentence that he has become of none effect to you is the Greek word apo, which means to be severed, separated, or the original union and fellowship dissolved. So Paul is making the argument that if you started by radical grace, by sovereign choice, by faith-based, spirit-based life, and now try to turn back to man-centric, traditional legalism life, then basically you're severing yourself from the original. You're severing yourself from the, where you were. You have completely cut it off. Those two can't stay together. kind of harkens back to what Christ said about serving God or serving man, money, and other you know, worldly things. He says, those two can't coexist. You can't serve one. You can't have two masters. You're either going to serve the one and despise the other or love the one and despise the other. That's, he says it just doesn't work together. It's kind of like oil and water. They don't mix very well. So the same thing with this. He says if you're departing, if you're going away from what was centrally Christ and his achievements on the cross as your sole source of justification that was delivered through faith, if that is how you started, but now you turn over here and say, nope, I think the law is what I really have to get on board with to really be justified. He says, well, then the other one's just kind of gone away. You've severed your union from it. It's no longer a part of your reality. It's no longer what you're based off of. It's no longer what's at your center. It's no longer... It's of none effect to you. Because if you have now changed and reverted to, it's all about my keeping of certain traditions... To get myself justified, well, Christ takes a back seat. What does Christ have to do with that? Where does Christ come in with that? How does Christ benefit you with that? Well, he doesn't. You don't need Christ to be circumcised. You don't need Christ to keep the law. Paul did a really good job of it. So you don't need Christ in those situations. If it's going back to being all about you, well, man, you got all the you you need. Christ doesn't really have a place with that. So that's why he uses that phrase, is that you have fallen from grace. It's no longer about grace. You've made it about yourself. It's no longer about Christ. He's of none effect to you because it's all about yourself. It's a very selfish position. So the point being that if you seek justification by your religious actions, then Christ really becomes useless to you. If, however, you believe on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for your justification, then Christ is everything to you. If you have taken it off of yourself or any religious practices that you can do to get yourself there... Then all is left is Christ, and now Christ is everything. And that's why Paul even said in his introductory statements, he says, that's why we being Jews, we knew that justification didn't come by the law. That's why we believed on Christ, because we recognized that Christ was our only way to be justified. Christ is our only satisfaction. Christ is our only achievement. Christ is the only one who could do all this. And so we believed in him. We let go of believing in ourselves and keeping the law because we knew it could never justify us. We had to turn to the only one who could. And that's Jesus. So in the, in the contrast to this, if you have let go of all that, it's about me and me doing what I can do, and you've turned to believe in Christ, well then Christ is everything to you. Christ is the only thing to you. He's the only one who can justify. So instead, Paul gave us his position in this too. He's kind of described this position of, well, if you decide that you want to be circumcised, then Christ becomes none effect. You're now under the law. Go live in the law. If you don't live it perfectly, sorry, you're cursed. You're cast out. You're done. That's the, that's the reality of the law. That's why we loved Christ, because he kind of got us out from under all that. <laughs> he delivered us from that terminal you know, cancer of law-based, achievement-based justification. He delivered us from that, because guess what? It never could do what it was kind of not ever intended to do. And we never could do even an inch of what was necessary to do for our justification. So he says once Christ and faith and all that came on the scene he says man we we ran to that. We let go of all the other stuff and we ran to that because we realized that that is it. And that's why Paul would be able to go hey it's 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 Christ and nothing. Everything else I count as dung I throw it on the trash heap it's over. All the things by the flesh that I could count up being of the tribe of Benjamin and circumcised on the eighth day and all these things of faith and keeping the law and persecuting the church, all the things that I could put on my resume, he says, I threw it all in the trash because guess what? It didn't do anything for me. Instead, when I found Christ, it was Christ. It's all Christ. So Paul then gives his position. He says, so instead, us, we who are living out by the Spirit and by faith and following in Christ. He says, we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. So those your, there's your compare and contrast, okay? He says, your, your one side is, you can seek it through the law, you can seek it through man-made traditions, you can seek it through religious activities. He says, and your ending is slavery, cursing, and death says or on the contrary you can let all that stuff go you can follow in christ and through the spirit and by faith you await eagerly the hope of righteousness you would think that that would be a very easy argument to make and people would go well golly if that's the case well i will choose the latter because that just makes more sense That's why we always choose ice cream over Brussels sprouts, right? Because it just makes more sense, doesn't it? So in contrast to what you have here, you have those who believe only in Christ for their justification and what is their life. Eagerly awaiting through the Spirit by faith for the hope of righteousness. Paul also kind of makes this beautiful statement from Hebrews chapter 11 regarding kind of faith's working and what it is. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's two other ways that that can be put. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. And faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I like all three of those because they give such a beautiful picture about what faith is to us and how it works in us. The faith we possess by the Holy Spirit is the reality of what we hoped for, the hope of righteousness. Our belief in Christ for our justification is Christ being the one who is the only one who justifies, not the stuff that we do gives us the assurance not only the only assurance we can attain in this world of what our reality is and what it will be it also serves as the conviction for the unseen radical change that is in our life it is the thing that is most evident to us that that shows us that gives us the evidence and faith, it now guides us. The Holy Spirit's fruit kind of bears out in us. The changed life in our belief in Jesus Christ as a conviction for our new way of living. It, it, it is what makes us who we are. So then he says, what matters? What works? What does this new reality and conviction mean? Look like He says in verse 6, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. So what does work? What does matter? What does this new reality and conviction look like? He says, faith which works by love or faith which works through love. So we're circling back to some of the foundational teachings of Jesus Christ. Faith through love love or you can even re- invert that love through faith Christ was asked that question in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 40 what lord what is what is the greatest commandment what is the thing that the law has as its chiefest element And Christ said that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love, love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. For this is the greatest commandment, and the second is like to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang or depend on these two commandments. So what is Paul saying is the end of this? You have Man made self justification over here, achievement based justification over here, which only leads to cursing, death, you know, slavery, unhappiness, whatever you want to look at. Contrasting to that, you have justification by faith in Christ alone. That's it. Nothing else. Not you in there anywhere. This one over here, though, works love. This one over here works death. This one over here works love, compassion, mercy, hope, hope of righteousness. This one over here works anger, malice, despair, destruction, and death. So not self-serving, self-justification through religious traditions and legalism, but faith working through love. That's the... That's the summation of the two. So then he asks the question, you ran well, you were doing good. What now has hindered you that you should not obey the truth? And he says, this persuasion did not come from him that called you. But a little leaven does leaven the whole lump. However, I have confidence in you through the Lord that you will be none otherwise minded but he that troubles you shall bear his judgment. Paul here is given his confidence that in the power of Christ, in the power of the gospel, that these Galatians are not going to accept this other view, okay? That they are going to reject it. And he also cautions that that corrupting effect of false teachers that is among them. He cautions against that saying, hey, guys, this is going to, though, kind of it's, it's going to be a persuasive argument leaven leavens the whole lump all you got to have is a little bit it'll change everything you have to be aware of that but you also have to recognize that ultimately that person that false teacher who is that leaven who has come amongst you that is beguiling you that is trying to bewitch you that is trying to remove the cross and replace it with circumcision he says that person is going to ultimately be punished for what they do but remember that you're not to entertain it for a minute you're to throw out the religious trash You're to not let that stuff entertain in your ears. You're not to abide by it and say, hey, that sounds pretty good. Let me listen to it a little bit more. He says, no, you have to go back to relying on the power of Christ and Christ alone. But the key verse here that is what identifies, again, the whole message of this false teacher that we kind of mentioned in the beginning and now we finally get to it is, if I, he says in verse 11, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, if I decide that I'm going to start preaching circumcision, then why do I yet suffer? Or if I did preach circumcision, why am I suffering now? Why am I being imprisoned? Why am I being shipwrecked? Why, am I be, why are all these things happening to me? Why would I be suffering if I preached circumcision or if I do do preach circumcision? He says, if I did those things, then the offense of the cross would cease. So, the purpose that he is making here is saying, Look, the whole reason why I am persecuted is not because of circumcision. It's not because I'm preaching circumcision. In fact, if I had been preaching circumcision and gave up preaching the cross, everything would be great. We'd go back to a pre Damascus Road situation. I'd be a chief among the Pharisees, everything would be awesome. Life would be hunky-dory. I wouldn't be being persecuted. The sole reason why I am persecuted is because I preach the cross of Jesus Christ and justification in Him alone, which really makes mad a whole bunch of people who think it's got to be by you obeying them and their religious traditions. So that's why I'm persecuted. That's why I went from being the persecutor to the persecuted it was I started preaching the cross. I started writing letters about how it's not by circumcision. It's not by self-justification. It's not by your keeping of the law. It's actually of grace and of the cross and of the faith through Christ. That's, that's what I'm being persecuted for. So Paul's argument here, he says, if you take away the cross, then you have no persecution. If you preach circumcision or Jewish religious tradition in its entirety, then there's no offense. This is why we can kind of know that what this, these Judaizers, these false teachers who had come in, these leaven in the lump, however you want to kind of describe them, they're not just preaching some other version of the gospel or some kind of Christ plus something. They are actively preaching circumcision as a replacement for the cross. They want to take that offense away. They're not not being persecuted for this. They're not preaching the cross and something. They're preaching circumcision and nothing. They're preaching the law and not Christ, okay? They're avoiding the persecution. He'll kind of revisit this a little bit later in chapter 6. So these people were removing the cross to remove the offense and instead replacing it with circumcision. Let's get back to the good old ways. Let's get back to the good old religion. Everything that we've been a part of, all your fathers grew up in, all that stuff. Let's get back to all that. The cross and Jesus and all that's very offensive. Let's leave that off to the side. Let's get back to doing what you can do. Let's get you on board with circumcision. You on board with the law. Let's kind of get you Gentiles in the right path. And we can fall in the same trap. We can get to where we remove the cross just to be religious. It happens in our society. The cross is still offensive. Submission to Christ is still offensive. We don't really want to be you know, offensive to people. We want to be engaging. We want people to you know, feel comfortable in every aspect of their life, but that's not what radical grace has called us to. It has not called us to be just, quote, religious. It has not called us to keep up you know, the denomination. It has not called, called us or changed us to just affirm practices that we've always done. It has called us to love through faith, to believe in Jesus Christ and love Him and love everyone we encounter. That's what it's called us to. It's called us to Him. It's changed us for him, to promote him, to preach him, to submit to him. That's what it's changed us for. To love him and to love everyone we encounter. He says, "But brethren, you have been called to liberty, liberty, only don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh." but by love you're serving one another. For all the law is fulfilled in this one word, even in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. See how Paul now ties the argument together. You're wanting to be back under the law. You think that's an idea? You think that's a great idea? You think that's just now what you have to do? Well, now he's calling out that false teaching Judaizer, and he's kind of admonishing his Gentile Galatian brethren, saying, both of you, I'm going to give you the summation of the law. I'm going to give you the totality of the law as explained by Jesus Christ himself. The fulfillment of the law is completed in this one phrase. You will love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he just said back in Matthew 22 the completion, the totality of the law can be summed up in these two commandments that are just like one another, that are together, they're not separate. It's not you keep one and you don't have to keep the other. It's this one teaching. You're to love God with everything and you're to love your neighbor with everything. He says that is the law. You're over here focused on getting recircumcised. I'm telling you, this is the law. Love through faith. That's the law. You, you're, you're over here talking about these religious practices doing, saying, oh, well, I'm keeping the law. I'm getting back to the tradition of our fathers. I'm doing all these things. And Christ is saying, well, I mean, if you're not loving through faith, you're actually not keeping the law. So if you want to keep the law, if you want to, you know, kind of follow in that track of saying, I am in the tradition of keeping the law that God gave, if you're going to say, hey, everything that God did in the Old Testament, all the stuff with the law, everything, those are good and right practices. And in many cases, they are. We're not of some kind of antinomian, you know, persuasion that everything in the Old Testament and all the law is done away with, and we don't have to keep it. There is the law is of God, okay? But what has happened in the past and what happens still today is if you convert the law as the source of your justification, if you think that you keep the Ten Commandments and that's how you're justified, you have now taken Christ out of the equation. That's a problem. Yes, we are to keep the law in the manner of love through faith, okay, in Christ. And Christ made it really simple for us. He says, you want to know how you keep the law? You want to know what the summation of the entire law is, which is really good for me. Give me the Cliff Notes version. Give me it pared down. You know, let me get my my two bullet points that I can run with. Love God with everything you have. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law. Okay, that seems like a pretty easy thing to do, right? Right? So he says, this is what you were called to. You were called to be free, not to be entangled by religious traditionalism, not to be trapped by self-justification. And this takes many forms. This is thinking because you don't watch bad movies or you don't cuss or you don't drink or smoke or you vote Republican or that you're justified by these things or by your religious practices or by your denominational affiliation, that those are the things that justify you. Instead, Paul wants the Galatian church to remember their freedom. Their freedom is only in Christ. Their freedom in justification, in faith alone, believing in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's that's the only source of your justification. Nothing else justifies. Not where you're born, not political party you're a part of, not church you attend. That's not what justifies you. It's only Jesus Christ. He's the only source of it. So if you get in that trap of self-justification, you're, you're, you're leaving Christ way out on the back 40. He's of no effect to you. And the most beautiful part about it, most beautiful part about it, is that Christ didn't give us this freedom to satisfy our own desires and to make ourselves the center of attention. Instead, he gave us the freedom, he frees us up to love. To love one another, to serve one another, to have compassion on one another. I can't think of a better time than now for that. All you have to do is browse through Facebook or whatever, get on your feed, and there's just all this back and forth, and all I can think of is that there's no better time right now than love through faith by The believers of Jesus Christ. Quit trying to win arguments. Quit backbiting, as he says. If you backbite and devour, or if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. How much trouble has that gotten us in over the years? In contrast, when we put off the self and instead turn to Christ alone for our justification and believe in Him alone, we are free to love and serve one another. If we put it back on ourselves, we're in bondage to serving ourself. Our selfishness, our selfish desires, our selfish needs, and everyone else gets left to the side. You can't fulfill that commandment of the law if you're too focused on yourself. So Paul warns us, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. That's such a prophetic word. How many divisions has this caused amongst us, amongst our denominations, amongst all of our churches, in the U.S. and wherever? How much has man-made traditionalism, instead of focusing on the words of Christ, caused problems? How have we used the freedom that Christ has won for us Have we used it to segment his church? Have we used it to create divisions, to argue, to fight, to ban, to disassociate, to break fellowship for the cause of preserving our man-made religious traditions? Instead, Paul says, be free. Be free to love and not contend. Be free to love and not consume. Be free to love and not divide. That's kind of where we have to stop today. But that's now in context with that. Read the rest of the chapter as he starts talking about a fruit of the Spirit. You know, we sometimes, again, will kind of take these things and we'll speak on them on different contexts that are kind of, not intentionally, but they're out of the context of what is in the Scripture here. And what Paul has been talking about this whole time is man-centric self-justification through religious practices that causes backbiting and divisions and a lack of love towards other people and he says instead you have faith-based jesus christ justification that eliminates you and your works and your self justification and your religious practices to get there and instead frees you up for love through faith those are the two situations we in we're in now when you read about these fruits of the flesh and fruits of the spirit you tie that into that greater theme And you notice that within the fruit of the flesh, he says, what you have in that are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, variances, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies. The the interesting thing about that is what we typically focus on is, let's focus on the sexual immorality, the impure sensuality, let's focus on idolatry and sorceries. But what is jam-packed in the middle of that is strife, enmity, jealousy, jealousy fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Well, those are all things that he's addressing with this self-made justification. You're back to, I'm circumcised and you're not. I'm right and you're wrong. We're the people you're not. All those things that he had addressed earlier, said they're doing this not for your good, but actually to exclude you from all this. They're doing it to make a point that because you're Gentile and uncircumcised, you're not a part of them. That's jam-packed in these works of the flesh. We like to stop at the things that we, the big hobby horses, like adultery and fornication and stuff, but he's talking about those things slammed in the middle. Saying you can't leave any of it out. In fact, he's almost putting it on the same playing field. Saying, you can't can't throw out and say, oh, well, I'm not an idolater and I'm not an adulterer and I'm not a fornicator. I do have a problem with causing divisions and dissensions and anger and envy and strife, especially within the church. He says, "That's, that's, that's all the same spirit, brother. You can't just get on one and ignore the other one. So, as we conclude here, think about what Christ has set us free for. Think about how he has set us free from these things of religious, you know, traditionalism and those kind of things, and how that affects us. How he has set us free from being reliant on ourselves, reliant on our kind of, again, self-made justification by our works, even if they're religious works, how he has set us free from all that, and he says, hey guys, it's just me. It's always just been me. It will always be just me. Just believe in me. Be free from the other stuff. Be free from your self-made man idea. And instead, be freed to love as I have created you to do. And may God bless us to work on that. If you'll close with us, we'll, uh, or bow with us, we'll close out with prayer. Father, we thank you for blessing us to be here, blessing us to hear your word, blessing us with the message that you have given us. We pray that you would please let this take root in our hearts to encourage us, to admonish us, to drive us in the coming week that we may love out of faith the faith that you have given us and that you would help us and embolden us to let go of kind of self-made justification and rely only on you. Um, that we can be the creatures that you have created us to be. May God bless us to do this. In your name, Jesus, amen.